in the UK, I think the, for a while at least, the most well-known case involved Georgi Markov, who was a Bulgarian dissident. This is back in 1978 during the Cold War. And he was working as a journalist in London. And he was on his way to work and he felt a stab in his shin and looked round and saw someone picking up a dropped umbrella. It became known as the Umbrella Murder. He started feeling really unwell. By the evening he was vomiting and he had a high fever. And he went to hospital, but unfortunately he, he died four days later from multi-organ failure. And it was only on autopsy that they found a little pellet embedded in his leg. Uh, it was absolutely minute. And there were still traces of a plant toxin called ricin in it. Uh, that's the toxin that you find in the seeds of the castor oil plant. Um, and when that's introduced directly into the bloodstream, it's extremely toxic. So last episode, we looked at some of nature's miracle workers, plants that heal. But this time, we're looking at a more deadly side, plants that harm. Just like animals, plants have developed an array of defences. And for every thorny rosebush, there are also plants with more subtle fortifications. Chemical compounds can turn an innocent-looking ornamental into a deadly assassin. Deadly nightshade. Hallucination. Angel's trumpet. Murder mysteries. Agapanthus. They're all toxic. Dangerous. Can cause death. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and all that is coming up on a thrilling episode of Branch Out. presence of chemicals in plants that happen to be harmful to herbivores or pathogens like um, bacteria or fungi, that anything that might damage the plant, just any plants that had a chemical in there that gave them some advantage over those organisms is more likely to survive and to reproduce. That's Dr Elizabeth Dauncey. She's a plant toxicologist and an author from the UK. And so that trait might be passed on to the progeny, etc. So it's um, it's just like uh, how plants develop thorns or have ended up with leathery leaves. It's just given them some sort of advantage for survival. For pretty much our entire history, we've utilised plants for medicinal benefits to help and heal. We've also turned poisonous plants into, well, weapons. Looking at a worldwide perspective, I think it's got to be uh, the plants that are used as arrow poisons or on poison darts or spears, because you need relatively small amounts of the plant extract, the sap usually, uh, on the tip of that dart, and then it can kill the prey or immobilise them. Um, and they're used all around the world traditionally to, to hunt animals. So we have things like in, in Africa, we have species of strophanthus. They're in the dogbane family. So they're related to the oleanders, which you might know of. And they contain um, cardiac glycosides. So they cause heart failure uh, when they're introduced directly into the bloodstream via a wound. But interestingly, they're only really poorly absorbed through the digestive tract. So if you eat that animal, um, you're not poisoned by it. Elizabeth has worked closely with Kew Gardens and the guys in St Thomas's Poisons Unit in London. She knows a lot about plants, both poisonous and therapeutic, and has even written books on both. 
The last book I did was on uh, Plants That Cure. It's a sort of the partner to Plants That Kill. So I've looked more into the chemistry of medicinal plants as, as well as just the toxic ones. Um, but b- prior to that, I was working on something called the Medicinal Plant Names Service, which is a service that uh, is run out of Kew Gardens, um, where we try to map all the names that are used for medicinal plants around the world uh, onto a, a taxonomy backbone, because you find that people use not only different common names, different pharmaceutical names, but also different scientific names for the same plant. There are a huge number of poisonous plants out there, and as Elizabeth says, different names for lots of them. So the work she's doing in categorising them is incredibly important. Depending on the chemistry of the plant in question, there are all kinds of responses that happen within the body. We heard about heart failure already, caused by cardiac glycosides. There are various others. There's the aconitums, uh, monkshood or wolfsbane. They contain alkaloids that will uh, disrupt the contractions of the heart, give you arrhythmias that can lead to heart failure. Um, But uh, there's the foxgloves that we all know about, things like that. Different plants and their toxins affect different parts of our body. There are even ones that have effects within the brain and central nervous system. Some of the most well-known ones will be from the potato family. Uh, So we all know that potato family has lots of edible species, but also some really quite poisonous species in the same family. Um, So we have the deadly nightshade, Atropa belladonna, and there are also Datura and Brugmansia, the angel's trumpets, uh, that are grown as ornamentals. Um, They contain tropane alkaloids and they act on the nervous system They produce a very distinctive set of symptoms, including dilated pupils. They affect the brain as well and can cause confusion and hallucinations. Then there's the kidneys, which can be affected by a whole range of poisons. The kidneys, I think the most important for me would be the aristolochic acids that you find in species of aristolochia, known as Dutchman's pipe. They're used in herbal medicines, but if they're used inappropriately, then um, and you also have to take them chronically. So you have to ingest them for a fairly long time, uh, repeatedly. Um, and then they can cause kidney failure, but also cancer of the urinary tracts. The list of plants that can harm or kill goes on and on. And there are thousands of accidental poisoning illnesses and deaths each year all around the world. And to make it even more scary, sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference between something that's poisonous and something that's not, like mushrooms. Mushrooms sometimes are hard to identify. Um, We've had cases where um, people have picked mushrooms off um, off the road or perhaps off a field or under an oak tree in particular, um, because as you know, Amanita uh, tends to grow under oak trees and they've cooked these up and eaten them and um, it sometimes doesn't tweak till much later what's happened and why this person suddenly presented with vomiting and has become very sick. So with things like mushrooms, um, we uh, obviously worry about uh, death cap mushrooms uh, and Amanita phylloides. That's Associate Professor Naren Gunja. He works as a medical toxicologist at two toxicology units in Sydney and at the Poison Centre. 
yeah, I was always very interested in chemistry and drugs, um, poisons. Um, I read a lot of Agatha Christie and other murder mysteries um, when I was uh, a teenager. He's turned that passion into a very important career that helps people. The clinical side of toxicology means responding to someone presenting to a hospital with a suspected poisoning. And time is always of the essence. The poisoning declares itself within hours usually, um, sometimes days for slower poisons, depending on what the drug or chemical is. And um, plants would be an example of something that um, some plants can act very quickly and early, um, like certain types of mushrooms. And others, uh, some mushrooms take many hours before they uh, declare themselves um, that they uh, have caused some kind of toxicity. So it, it, it kind of depends on what um, is the clinical scenario. And obviously in the hospital space, we are um, trying our best, of course, to uh, either resuscitate or save the patient's life or treat them appropriately so that the poisoning doesn't uh, evolve into some kind of long-term complication of their health. It's a challenging job sometimes. Deciding on the best course of action depends on understanding what has caused the poisoning, which can often be difficult to pinpoint and involves a lot of detective work. Yeah, it's predominantly through the history of what the person has taken, plus the circumstances around which they were found, their vital signs, so their heart rate, blood pressure, and that, that cluster of symptoms and signs makes us think of what's called a toxidrome, uh, a way a patient presents, and that gives us clues as to what they might have taken. We put that together with the blood results that we get um, through the through the lab, uh, the biochemical results, and then uh, we then decide on what's the most likely things that fits this picture and then decide whether we need to um, do specific um, drug concentrations or we may need to do uh, drug screens um, out of the blood or the urine. Naren also works in the forensic side of toxicology. Now, if that sounds familiar from your favourite crime show, it's because forensics is the application of science in detecting crime. Naren helps the police when there's a suspicion of intentional poisoning. Obviously, a little bit slower paced um, because it takes time for the autopsy to happen and for uh, the post-mortem samples to be analysed uh, by the lab and then those results come through and um, this may lead to a perhaps a coronial inquest or it may lead to a um, medical legal review or perhaps it is something that the police get involved with and it's something where someone may be charged, go to court So there are criminal poisonings and also innocent mistakes. But of course, there's also a long and continuing history of humans intentionally poisoning themselves or playing chemistry with their own bodies. So Angel's Trumpet is the Brugmansia species um, and it is one of many anticholinergic plants um, that we have uh, and there are other plants like Datura that are, do very similar things. But there's a long list of plants that have anticholinergic features and uh, they contain these alkaloids which block the muscarinic receptor in the brain and in the body. And they are often taken um, recreationally. 
because they induce hallucinations and people put it in their tea. And in years past, and when I say years, in previous centuries, people have used angel's trumpet for all sorts of attempted medicinal um, practices. But in general, um, they tend to cause hallucinations and delirium. And while people may have tried that for recreational purposes, uh, it can cause profound toxicity um, to make people have um, heart problems, um, nervous system problems, uh, and can people can eventually end up with seizures and coma. Now, it definitely goes without saying, do not try this at home. A lot of plant poisonings are, however, simply the unfortunate result of accidental ingestion of the wrong type of plant. Noren has mentioned death cap mushrooms already, which are responsible for the vast majority of mushroom poisoning deaths. These white mushrooms with their yellowy-greenish hoods are often eaten by forest foragers. Which um, people should definitely not do. Uh, you should not um, eat wild mushrooms in Australia. And the poisoning initially can, can be almost nothing. Within the first 12 hours, sometimes people don't feel it any symptoms whatsoever but then after that they start vomiting and can have diarrhea uh, and that can become bloody diarrhea what eventually happens is that mushroom um, is hepatotoxic or toxic to the liver and the liver starts to uh, auto digest in a way and starts to have significant inflammation and goes into liver failure eventually people um, have a protracted and quite a nasty death from liver toxicity and at one point the only thing that might save their life is a liver transplant. Do you think you can spot the difference between a Swiss brown mushroom and the fatal death cap? Because sometimes the difference between an edible species and a deadly one can be tiny, which is why it should be left up to the experts to decide. Coming up after the break, professional plant identification. To make sure our botanic gardens across Sydney remain places of outstanding horticultural beauty and we keep our scientific institutions at the forefront of research, we need a strong, supportive community to advocate and support our vital work, protecting our plants and our future. Our aim at the Botanic Gardens is to prevent the extinction of not only our native plants, but the animals which rely on them, including you and me. And your donation will help scientists and horticulturists work on real solutions to help ensure our plant life can withstand a changing climate. Just head to the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website and hit the donate button to learn more. Over years, you recognise characteristics and can usually jump straight to a family or genus based on personal recognition that you have yourself that, that comes just with experience. And then you can funnel in and hone down using literature, dichotomous keys. So, for example, if the plant was collected in the bush somewhere in New South Wales, we'd usually go to the floor of New South Wales. That's Andrew Orme and Shauna McCune. They're both technical officers working within the Botanical Information Service at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. They're professional plant identifiers. Well, we provide information on 
plants of New South Wales primarily, uh, native and naturalised plants. In information like their current names and their identification so that we can tell people what they are. They might want to know the distribution where those plants occur naturally in, in the wild. And if it's a weed, they'll want to know it's spread over time, how invasive it is, where it's come from, where it's likely to move towards. The vast majority of our inquirers want plant identifications and they're either native, weedy or cultivated plants in New South Wales. That is our area of expertise. Andrew and Shauna are sent hundreds of plant samples every year from a whole range of people asking for identification, sometimes hoping to have discovered a new species. It can be a complex process because the difference between plant species can sometimes be as tiny as the types of hair on the petal. It really wouldn't be possible without the incredible collection of over 1.4 million botanical specimens kept at the National Herbarium of New South Wales, which is right at their fingertips. It's a reference collection. Being able to compare with the specimens is essential. Like our current situation, working from home, I, I find it very hard not having a specimen to compare material with. So you're looking closely at part of an orchid flower and something that might distinguish uh, one of these really rare endangered orchids from something that's more common might be a character on the galea of a pterostylus. Do you know what a galea is? Don't worry, neither did I. This is why plant ID should be left up to the experts. It's basically the helmet-shaped part of certain plants, such as the upper petal. Aside from helping land managers and others with straight plant ID, Andrew and Shauna also help the police in both murder and counter-terrorism cases. Now, being extremely confidential, there's obviously not a whole lot of detail Andrew and Shauna can share, but it's pretty exciting detective work. You might be given evidence that has pollen and fragments of plant material and you can work out that assemblage of those things if you put them together and get vegetation types which would help you hone in on an area and then you use that evidence given with if you were for instance going to use triangulation locality from mobile phones things like that and usage other other sorts of evidence that they've got given areas you can then hone in on an area based on pollen and plant fragments to give you likely spots within a, a smaller area. So you use various things to hone in on, on spots. Sometimes our plant scientists are even called into court to give evidence. And when it comes to poisonous plant ID, just in New South Wales alone, there's plenty to keep them busy. Daphne, poppies, hellebores. Yeah, things like lilies. Deadly nightshade. Angel's trumpet. Castor oil plant. White cedar. The apocynaceae, things like oleander. A lot of bulbs, daffodils and jonquils and arum lilies. Agapanthus, they're all toxic. Fireweed, Senecio madagascariensis and Patterson's curse, which a lot of people know. Now, it might seem like there's a lot of dangerous plants out there. But remember how many different species we have on the globe. And Elizabeth Daunty says that really shouldn't make us afraid to go outside. Just the opposite, in fact. 
I think people would be most surprised about if they actually found out how many plants that just are around them in the countryside or in their garden or even their house plants, how many of them are counted as poisonous. Uh, and it just goes to show you how safely we can live with all these poisonous plants. Um, if you don't eat them, then the majority of them are perfectly safe. I am a bit of a, an advocate, yes, a defender of poisonous plants, definitely. They do cause so little harm, really, and um, it doesn't, it just needs a little bit of education, maybe when you've got young children, about which ones to be careful of. But um, yeah, we do live with them safely, and uh, they, they can be maligned unnecessarily. Um, so it's just a bit of education, really. Thanks for listening to Branch Out and a huge thank you to all of the incredibly passionate and knowledgeable guests who featured in today's episode. If you like today's show, please hit subscribe and give Branch Out five stars and a positive review. It helps more people discover the surprising world of plants. Our next episode is the final one for this series, but don't worry, we're going out with a bang. Most important is that these are bisexual reproductive units. So most of flowers actually have female and male organs in the same place. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and this episode was produced by Dan Butler.